I'm University of Dayton School of Law Dean Andrew Strauss, and welcome to the first installment of On the Witness Stand. This podcast will provide me with an opportunity to interview our Dayton Law faculty and other affiliates. My first guest today is Erica Goldberg, one of the outstanding faculty members of the Dayton Law School. Erica is a graduate of the Stanford Law School. She was a Clemenco Fellow at Harvard Law School and visiting scholar at the Georgetown Law Center. Erica is a specialist on the First Amendment. And in today's podcast, Erica and I will discuss some of the most salient challenges to the First Amendment, including the First Amendment protections to promulgate political lies and the speech-related controversies. Welcome, Erica Goldberg. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be at this inaugural chat session. Yeah, great to have you, Eric. I think you're, I think you're a really ideal guest to be our, our first interviewee because you're really dealing with, as I said in the introduction, you're really dealing with some of the most salient issues that are not only sort of impacting society at large, but particularly impacting all of us in the academy and I'm sure our viewership is directly having experience with the kind of First Amendment issues that you deal in, in with in the Arizona piece. Before jumping straight into the piece, I, I'd like to sort of familiarize the audience a little bit with you personally and your point of departure for the articles that you're writing. And just I'd like to just ask you sort of an open-ended question, which is, Tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to having a strong interest in the First Amendment. Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, as far back as applying to college and potentially farther back than that, but I can't quite remember, I really cared about dialogue and discourse as like a universal value and particularly an American value. You know, the search for truth has always been an adamating principle in my life. Sometimes my friends will, you know, prioritize, say, like hedonism, pursuit of pleasure, or people will uh, say, you know, the most important social value is like overall social welfare or progress or something like this. And my animating principle has always been truth. Uh, and so I was delighted if I didn't go to law school, I was going to be a journalist. Uh, I was delighted to be able to pursue a path in thinking about process-based methods for achieving truth. I'm one of those people that's still kind of a believer in truth. This might actually just be a throwback to a bygone era, but I think these are important values to keep fresh and keep thinking about as modern philosophical thought develops. So let me just follow up on that before, again, diving in here. You know, I find that a really interesting uh, personality feature, um, this, this idea of some people that have a, a real quest and desire to know the truth. In, in my own experience, there's, there's also some people that are kind of the opposite. They actually don't want to strive for truth, and maybe sometimes the, the opposite. What do you think makes the difference in somebody that wants to go towards the truth and somebody that actually doesn't? It's something I myself have actually given some thought to. Yeah, I think there's a few things here. So some people are more pragmatically oriented uh, in the sense that they want to do the thing that's just going to yield the best results. And sometimes 
truth is impractical, especially if you can't change the truth and it just makes you unhappy. I know a lot of people, you know, it's not necessarily that they want to lie to themselves, but their understanding of what is necessary to know is not as large as mine because I think knowledge is just inherently valuable. I'm not a utilitarian the way that I would say most people I associate with are. I'm a deontologist, like I believe in principles. Uh, you know, I think the other thing is, I mean, there's two types of people who are sort of not as truth-minded. There are those who are explicitly trying to not be as truth-minded. And there are those who think they are truth-minded, but are not truth-minded. And potentially I might even fall into that category, right? Because they're are going to be unknowns there. But, you know, I think there are a variety of reasons why people might prioritize other values because truth is in tension with plenty of other values. And I would say, and maybe this is even a familial trait because my brother and I have talked about this, that sometimes I might pursue truth in a way that I don't want to call it to an unhealthy or a pathological degree, but it, it becomes kind of a compulsion, I would say. And, and, uh, I'm sure that's informed my scholarship as well. So, well, this is a topic we could spend actually the whole the whole time. And I, I would like, I think, later on in the discussion to circle back to the question of the small question of what is truth right. and, and actually getting to sort of the epistemology of all this. But I think that really does tie quite well into your scholarship. And so I'd like to circle back to that in the context of your scholarship, Erica. So in your, your Arizona piece, First Amendment Contradictions and Pathologies in Discourse, you're, you're talking about, as I understand the article, you're really talking about the sort of way in which the freedoms that are prescribed by the First Amendment, uh, the, the protection of freedoms that are that are circumscribed from the government, that these actually open up the possibilities for the kind of behavior that can defeat First Amendment values in and of themselves. And what do we do about this problem? Is that, is that sort of a correct understanding of the of the problem that you're trying to deal with in, in the article? Yeah, absolutely. Sort of this fundamental question of why is it that if the First Amendment is centered on protecting peaceful, rational deliberation, we end up getting so much sort of emotionally laden, reductive, misleading speech that sometimes leads to violence. Um, and how do we deal with that? Is there a way in the doctrine to deal with that, I would say no. I would say these are sort of necessary contradictions. And then, you know, and this side issue that I like to focus on is the interaction between free speech doctrine and free speech culture. You know, how does the doctrine unavoidably affect our free speech culture? So I think one of the things that it seems to me that, that worries people throughout the society right now uh, on both the left and the right, because that, that's, uh, you know, this obviously this issue is a great concern to everybody, but people on the left have a different understanding of what the problem is, I think, than, than people on the right. But I think everyone is, is quite concerned that behaviors that are taking place in the society threaten our First Amendment rights, and that the, that the First Amendment could be swallowed up in, in some of the, by some of the type of behaviors that are taking place. What's your, what's your response to that? Yeah, so I guess, 
you know, I think, so, and sometimes in like sort of social discourse, people don't separate sort of actual First Amendment legal protections and things that private entities are doing, like censorship on social media platforms or things like that. Um, but I would say the biggest issue that's happening is that's that's really changing people's understanding of First Amendment values and, and leading to some skepticism about whether the doctrine is actually serving us is just the ease with which we all have access to speech. This democratization of speech uh, is creating problems we haven't seen before and problems that didn't entirely exist, at least to this extent, at the time that the First Amendment was drafted and ratified, which was basically anyone with any sort of fringe views can have a platform to speech, which in some sense is the sort of utopian ideal. Everyone has some sort of access to uh, free speech markets. But on the other hand, uh, it's really hard to filter out. You know, scholars will talk about, we now have a problem of attention, right? Speakers competing for people's attention. And this leads to um, using individuals' cognitive biases and emotional biases against them in order to attract larger and larger audiences uh, and, and kind of polluting or corrupting the marketplace of ideals that the First Amendment really envisioned would flourish. So, so when you talk about using people's, uh, um, using people's, weaknesses, uh, cognitive biases, and, and, and other types of cognitive weaknesses against them. Uh, can you explain a little bit more about how that works, what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is not a partisan issue. I think these problems exist on the left and the right. I don't know if I would say they exist in equal measure. I'm not entirely sure about that. But I would say that they are reinforcing so the more they happen on one side, like say uh, certain problems on the left cause people on the right to distrust institutions, cause sort of maybe more like conspiracy theories to flourish there than on the right. And so, you know, we have certain cognitive biases that are lately quite well studied, um, sort of like confirmation bias. You tend to overweigh evidence that already affirms your worldview. You have motivated reasoning type issues where um, you know, we come to some sort of conclusion and then we figure out a way to reason through it. And actually some studies show that the smarter you are, the more you're susceptible to motivated reasoning. So this is why I think this is actually sometimes a, quite a big problem in the academy. Um, but then you have these emotional, I guess you could call them biases. Desire for belonging is a huge one now, and especially with increased attention to people's emotional well-being. I would say sometimes, especially in modern times, at the expense of people's emotional well-being, uh, this sort of hyperfixation on emotional well-being, um, and that is that can sometimes exist in tension with rationality, and lead to people wanting to filter out information or uh, even more strongly exclude people from dialogue if they have points of view that other, other people think are anathema to their own sense of belonging or their own sense of cultural community, cultural identity. And this is happening on the left and the right. So one thing, and I noticed this in the article, is I would say you know, in addition to being a truth seeker, 
you're you're also a rationalist. I think. I mean, you believe in you know you believe in reason, and it, you talk a lot in the article. You acknowledge that you know there's this complex interplay between emotion and reason, but you sort of have the, the ideal is being able to sort of dispassionately reason things out to a right result. And so this gets back to this kind of epistemological question about the nature of truth and whether or not truth is actually reason. In your answer that you're just, or, or you can get to the truth through sort of some sort of notion of pure reason that you take the emotion and what you're calling these different kinds of biases out and that there is something there that's actually truth that comes out of this, this rational, this rational um, process. And I guess I'm, I question that uh, assumption uh, that we can really know things through sort of pure reason. It seems like, you know, that's maybe going back to sort of an enlightenment view and ignoring some of the insights of postmodernism that a lot of maybe the kind of epistemological, a lot of what's going on perhaps with the First Amendment may be the result of a kind of epistemological crisis where we don't really, as a society, fully believe in reason anymore. We've tried it, and we can't really figure everything out. I can remember when I was um, a freshman in, in college, uh, I had a friend who was taking a course in logic, and we talked about, well, is it possible to live a logical life? You know, and it, it's so far removed from the way that we actually live and, you know, in fact, what we're seeing with behavioral psychology and um, behavioral economics, I meant, and, uh, you know, other insights is that reason is actually such a small part of the way in which we, our, our cognition really works. It sort of floats above this huge unconscious part of ourselves. And so I, I think, you know, before maybe exploring some of these topics in more detail, it's worth asking about this basic question of whether reason actually can lead to truth. Yeah. And, and let me just say that I think this is one of the reasons people are abandoning First Amendment ideals, because this animating principle of truth through reason has been questioned and, and has been persuasively questioned by behavioral sciences, by uh, critical legal studies, right? But what are people replacing the search for truth with? Things that I would say are far more cynical, right? Like, and potentially descriptively accurate, right? It's everyone has their own truth in some people's minds, right? Speak your truth. I find this expression to be uh, somewhat concerning, although somewhat descriptively accurate, right? Everyone has their own sense of what is happening. Um, I guess, I would say, and my views about the interplay between reason and emotion are changing over time. Obviously, you cannot just exist as like a Vulcan, just displaying pure reason. I mean, I guess you could, but uh, as a human being, it's not possible because you have nothing to direct your reason towards. And also, if people have certain like emotional um issues, it distorts their reasoning process, right? Like, uh, you know, if you don't have enough serotonin in your brain, it's actually not just going to affect your emotional processing, it's going to affect your ability to reason. Uh, and my view is 
that reason, rationality, this fundamental First Amendment value, process-based approaches to understanding, right? As opposed to like ideological-based approaches to understanding or emotionally-based approaches to understanding are really critically necessary, especially at this juncture when people are becoming very cynical about them. And I will say, despite the fact that they're not always descriptively accurate, I think they are normatively desirable. And maybe this is just a myth that I'm perpetuating, which would be highly ironic, given that I'm trying to search for truth. But, you know, I would say it's sort of asymptotic. It's an ideal. The more we aspire to rationality, the more we will achieve rationality or process-based, open-minded open -minded approaches to ultimate sort of understanding about the world. The more we say there is no real truth, it's really just bias and power dynamics and things like that. The, I think the farther away we will ever get from as close as we could get to truth. So let me just follow up and ask the question in a slightly different way, I, because I think that's very interesting in terms of, of the role of reason in, in, in trying to maintain the search for truth through free speech. To what extent is it dependent at all on reason? Is it possible to have a rationale for the First Amendment that isn't necessarily based on reason, but nevertheless is based on some sort of type of a need for open discourse? Or is it entirely tied to sort of a methodology of reasoning our way and being able to argue with each other about what we normally think of as reason with an, with an aspiration for some sort of resolution that there's a, a right and a wrong reasonable answer? Yeah, so, I mean... Free speech as um, a process to achieving truth is kind of an instrumental justification for the First Amendment, right? The First Amendment leads to truth. There are other both instrumental and inherent rationales for the First Amendment. You could just say, well, free speech is a right of autonomous moral agents. People deserve the ability to express themselves. And this would actually encompass maybe even more speech if possible than we currently allow, right? And there are uh, scholars who say things like even fake news, quote unquote, fake news has, has this sort of value in allowing people to express themselves and join with certain expressive communities, even if the ultimate goal is not the search for truth. I mean, the First Amendment also protects all sorts of things that we wouldn't say are pure reason. Classical music, visual art. I will say, I think you've probably noticed about me, I tend to uh, gravitate towards the more verbal, the more conscious types of even art or music with lyrics, things like that. Um, but the First Amendment knows that we cannot purely separate what is an appeal to reason from what is an emotional appeal. Um, although, Things that we say have no role in the exposition of ideas often are not protected. So one reason that we've carved out obscenity as a category that's not protected is because we say this is a purely emotional response. This is a purely prurient response. It has no role in the exposition of ideas. And so we're not going to protect it. So, you know, while there are animating principles around the First Amendment, and we could certainly create a First Amendment that doesn't have truth as its centerpiece. I don't think that's what we currently have, and I'm not sure the world would be better if we moved away from truth as the fundamental animating value of the First Amendment.
thank you for that, Erica. Let me now shift and let's get right into the nitty gritty of where, you know, where a lot of the contention is today uh, in our society. So if I'm understanding your article correctly, it seems like you're saying that there's some really concrete areas where there's threats to First, uh, to, um, First Amendment and pathologies and discourse, as you call it. And on the right, you don't say it's on the right, but I think most of us would say this is on this is on the right, is that there's sort of threats of, well, some people might not say this is on the right, but probably a lot of us in academia would see this as on the right, that there's threats to violence, speech that's sort of causing some um, uh, potentially violent reactions and dishonest, you know, that's the sort of, fake news speech, the, the kind of speech that says that the election uh, of Joe Biden was stolen, and that that's one category that's threatening to the First Amendment or, the, or a, a culture, a First Amendment, a culture of, of, of free speech. And on the other hand, what people might identify as more on the left is sort of norms that are saying that it's not okay and you, you talk particularly in university settings that not everything is, is okay to say. The things that are um, uh, maybe insulting to people's sense of identity, uh, group identity, uh, are, are not okay, particularly maybe if they uh, are reestablish um, what people perceive to be uh, unjust hierarchies and that this is this whole other area and sort of the enforcement of, of certain ideologies and that some people are seeing that as a, as a threat to free speech. And I'm interested in sort of whether you see these two things, the one from the right and the one from the left as similar in terms of their threat to a first amendment kind of culture, whether they're different, how they're the same and is, is one a much larger threat than the other Sort of how do you process it? How do you put all these things together? Yeah, I've spent a decent amount of time thinking about, and this is all free speech culture, right? Although it exists in the shadow of First Amendment doctrine right. that allows this to flourish. I've thought about whether I think the real dangers are coming from pathologies and discourse on the right or pathologies and discourse on the left. And I actually just go back and forth depending on the day. And I'm not sure it's even that worthwhile to say which is worse. It is interesting to think about, are they just manifestations of the same um, mechanism? And, and at a very abstract level, I would say they are manifestations of the same mechanism, which is a desire for belonging and a desire to create identity and a sense maybe that one's own uh, identity is marginalized, which, you know, in some cases is absolutely true, right? But the problems on the right, and, and I think maybe currently, uh, and, and this is not specific just to the right, but I think currently maybe the most dangerous form of this uh, is what's going on with spreading um, false information about like vaccine efficacy or something like this. I mean, this is sort of existentially threatening and, and we have threats to our democracy. And on the left, I think 
conversations that should be nuanced and are important and relevant and salient um, are being artificially cabined and uh, especially in the place. And this is why I think sometimes I worry that uh, the problems on the left are worse, although I think it's just because this is the world I inhabit, right? That the place where conversations that are difficult, that are upsetting, um, the, the pure search for truth should happen is academia. And academia, uh, in order to accomplish some other quite important goals, though, has lost sight of the search for truth. And I think people uh, culturally, especially people on the right who feel more alienated by this and don't agree with some of the ideologies that are being sort of put forth as fact, are noticing this and losing faith in important institutions like the media, like sort of science, like academia. And so this is what I mean by these pathologies are mutually reinforcing. And in the paper, I call this problems of speech quality and problems of speaker identity. So we're getting a lot of speech in the marketplace of ideals that is low quality, either deliberately deceptive or just reductive narratives, um, you know, not really based on rigorous reasoning processes and not really checked by rigorous reasoning. And then we have problems of speaker identity, which is certain groups feel like um, they cannot speak on certain issues or that certain viewpoints are tied to certain identities in a way that if someone expresses a different viewpoint, people's sense of self becomes undermined and then they're just not susceptible to listening to certain types of viewpoints that really could add nuance to important current discussion. So... This is obviously a topic, I think, for our entire viewership that really hits home is around these issues and particularly uh, what you're the latter part of what you were just talking about for people who, who are on uh, university campuses. Um, and certainly, you know, we've been discussing these things uh, on our faculty and trying to uh, trying to work our way through them. I'm interested in drilling down on it a little bit, and then I'd like to follow up with some more questions about on, on the right. But, so how, how do you, sort of being practically getting into the weeds on this, how do you decide on a university campus, for example, is there any speech that, and again, we're not talking, you know, we, for example, are a private university, you know, we're not really under the First Amendment. So we're really talking about free speech culture here uh, and the values of the First Amendment rather than a, a technical legal discussion about the sort of First Amendment case law in this area. But how do you decide whether, say, in the classroom, certain speech is just out of bounds? I mean, are there certain things that, uh, as a professor, that you would say to a student um, you know, that's, that's just inappropriate in this, in this classroom, or does anything go? Yeah, I mean, so let me just say, I don't think that the problem is that professors are explicitly calling too much out of bounds. I think the problem is mostly in this cultural climate, self-censorship, uh, that people just aren't saying things to begin with. And you can say, well, just be braver, just, just say those things, right? But but it's not happening, and I think that is a real problem, right? Um, so, but in, in terms of the question that you asked, you know, I think 
setting up what I do in my own classroom is say, and this is something one of my professors in my wrongful convictions class in law school said, all views are welcome as long as you are respectful of your fellow student. Now, I like to really manifest my First Amendment views in the classroom. Um, and even in my classes, I think sometimes people are worried about expressing views that they think are contrary to whatever their perception is of my actual opinion, which isn't always right, but is is sometimes right. Um, I think, you know, but I, I think the problem isn't that people want to say things that are, we would all agree are absolutely horrifying. I, I mean, I'm sure this is happening. But I think the problem is people don't know where the line is. What are you allowed to say? You know, I teach criminal procedure. What are you allowed to say about policing that isn't going to make that that might be true and add nuance to a conversation, but but isn't going to make people um, feel sort of disrespected or feel excluded, right? And then, well, if you're not allowed to say that, have you now been disrespected? Have you now been excluded? Um, you know, in terms of like what shouldn't be allowed in a classroom, I would draw that line really far out. I haven't seen anyone even approach what I think shouldn't be allowed in a classroom. Although I have heard that people have said things sometimes, not just in my classroom, but in other classrooms that they, they think we're out of bounds. And I think, you know, what's really important, and I think we're not doing this well enough, what's really important is to have a variety of professors with a variety of views on this and a variety of teaching styles and a variety of political orientations so that what you have is like sort of different experimental communities with how to create discourse in the classroom. So that's really interesting. Are you optimistic that this can, that we're gonna work our way through this, this difficult cultural period around these issues? Well, um, I'm optimistic generally. <laughs> However, I am extremely worried right now that academia is actually polarizing more and more left, more and more ideological. And now I have tenure, so I can say this, right? Although I feel that that you have always been open to me expressing sort of my views about this, which is wonderful. Um, but, you know, I feel like we are more and more incorporating things that I would describe as ideological litmus tests into the tenure uh, or promotion and retention process into our evaluations of professors. I think, you know, it used to be that universities leaned left um, and, and that could be for a variety of reasons that are not nefarious at all, right? But now universities are just overwhelmingly left, even though that's a reductive category, it's, it's certainly true. And I worry it's going to get worse as the academic climate alienates more and more people who might have different perspectives on what is equality, what is justice, what is truth that are being now kept out because the cultural climate is exclusionary to those types of approaches. So at the outset, Erica, you, you said, you know, you're not sure whether there's more of the pathologies as you see it on the left or more, more on the right. So let's move on to sort of the right now and your concerns about the pathologies on, on the right. So how concerned are you about, um, and you know, in this question, we're constantly getting this question of equivalencies uh, right. in the society and so forth. It's part of the, it's, it's part of the political contest 
is, well, you know, what about, you know, the what aboutism that you, you, your side did this and your side did that. But so, so let's look at this. It, how damaging do you think sort of the, the untruths that you point to in, in your article are that um, seem to be coming, you know, in a, in a certain sort of organized way from the right. And the most, you know, the most obvious one is, of course, the, the, that's stolen election uh, mistruth and, and what led to January 6th and all of that. And I suppose uh, the question is, how da- dangerous is that to, I would say, our constitutional culture beyond just the First Amendment, probably, because it, it ties into the sort of structure of our, our society. So that, that, I guess, is the question. Yeah, so this one I'm actually more optimistic about, but again, this might just be because the world I inhabit is not one that displays the pathologies on the right, because it leans overwhelmingly left, right? And it leans overwhelmingly what you might call elitist or expertise-based as opposed to like populist, right? And the problems on the right are often ones of populism. Although I would say these problems on the left are also stemming from somewhat of a populist. But uh, the problems on the right are extremely dangerous, um, you know, deadly. But I, I find that they are, I mean, and they and have been deadly, uh, you know, not only in terms of January 6th, the insurrection, but deadly in terms of like this global pandemic uh, that we could have gotten a better handle on if we had mobilized quicker to vaccinate. Um, but, but these, I think, are potentially, and, and you know, reasonable minds can differ on this, are potentially more curable through uh, engagement, right? Through, it, to the extent, because, because they are diffuse as opposed to like centralized, built into power structures or sort of built into institutions, right? The problems on the left are, are somewhat institutional. These problems on the right are sort of decentralized, being perpetuated on the fringes through social media. I think there are ways that if we can sort of incorporate people into institutions or make them feel less like they're on the fringes, you know, a lot of a lot of it is them connecting because they feel so alienated from society. Uh, not because I think they they tend to want to believe. You know, I don't even know how ideological it is. It's almost like defined in opposition to sort of mainstream views. And and in that sense, I think, you know, it's maybe more subject to change. It's less like embedded or committed to a particular ideology. But but I could certainly see the argument that it's more dangerous, especially if uh, what we're giving up on is institutions. And the institutions I really believe in, right? Like our government, our academic institutions, our media institutions. It's just, I never thought we were going to enter some sort of constitutional crisis under President Trump. A lot of people did think we were gonna enter some sort of constitutional crisis. I never thought that. I just thought our institutions in place are strong enough to withstand it. And I think for the most part, that is true. Not that catastrophic things didn't happen, but we never had like a crisis of the constitution in a way that I think in previous eras, we maybe had worse constitutional crises in terms of like just the executive just ignoring the constitution or things like that. 
So there's obviously a lot more that we could say about all this, but we're we're running sort of out of time. I just am interested in sort of a final question, which is what you're working in probably in many ways, one of the most um, salient areas that our society is currently facing. What's next for you? Well, I certainly want to keep um, really drilling down on the relationship between reason and emotion and how it affects our discourse. I think I have a lot more to say about this. I think sometimes my articles come across as antagonistic to emotion, but there are a lot of scholars and I want to engage with them that say like, for example, feminist scholars who say like, well, emotion is the language of justice or anger is the language of justice. I want to get more deeply into human psychology and how it affects discourse. The other area I want to go into um, are new emerging areas uh, that intersect with the First Amendment. So I don't know if you're going to like hearing this or not, but I'm really thinking about going into smart contracts, blockchain, cryptocurrency. I think these are areas with less regulation and less uh, penetration into the marketplace of ideals, uh, sorry, of ideas that kind of resemble maybe, um, you know, terrain that wasn't totally regulated like long ago in the era of like free speech doctrine. Sounds like a really interesting agenda, Erica. Um, and I, I do like it. Uh, <laughs> so um, thanks so much for uh, spending time and, and giving uh, our colleagues uh, across the country and and even the, some around the world, a sense of, of the kind of work that you're doing and uh, why uh, we feel so lucky to have you here at the University of Dayton Law School. And if so, anyone, uh, yeah, oh, sorry. If anyone wants to chat with me, they should just email me and I really appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, no, thank you for being our, our inaugural interviewee. So that wraps up our, our, our first uh, uh, episode of this, and uh, we look forward to, to doing more. Thanks so much, Erica. Thank you.